Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, as always, from our Santa Monica studios. And the 2022 tennis season has reached its final stages. We've got a lot to recap on this show. First up, Jimmy Arias returns to the program to discuss Holger Rune's improbable Paris Masters victory. He defeated five top ten players, including Novak Djokovic in the final. We discussed that event as well as Caroline Garcia's triumph in the WTA Tour Finals over Arena Sabalenka. And we look at the next-gen event this week, the next-gen finals, Billie Jean King Cup, and preview the ATP Finals in Turin set to tip off next week. And then Todd Martin joins the show. He's currently the CEO of the International Tennis Hall of Fame, wrapping up his tenure at the end of the year. The American mainstay on tour was in the top 10, in the top 5, made two major finals, has one of the records that we're going to get into that you wouldn't think that he has, but one of the great tennis records that he holds a share of. We talk at length about his career, what it was like playing and competing against some of the greatest Americans of all time in Agassi, Sampras, and Courier, what his career meant to him, why he got into leadership after the game, and what some of his interests are as well. Very great chat with Todd Martin. First up, Jimmy Arias. This is Tennis Channel Inside In, and it starts right now. All right, now back on Tennis Channel Inside In, Jimmy Arias is here. The uh, former top five player has been a busy man in California, taking some time out of his schedule. Jimmy, thanks for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Season's reaching its uh, epic conclusion, 11 months. Coming down to this, the women had their final last week. The men are gearing up for theirs. We've got Next Gen, Billie Jean King Cup. Uh, First thing, I guess, you've got to be, from your vantage point, pretty excited by this American Kind of resurgence, renaissance, I don't know how we would put it, but the men have made their push. We've seen some career years from a few, and it hasn't just been a one-trick pony. We've got several players having their best years. Yeah, there's sort of two gens of the next Mm -hmm. gen in the U.S., and you know, you expected or thought Tiafo, Paul, Opelka, all those players were going to be making their mark at some point, and it's kind of taken longer almost, Taylor Fritz, almost Mm -hmm. longer than you thought than you might have thought earlier. I, I did always feel like Riley Opelka would be top 10 in the world <laughs> at some point. He was sort of the John Isner 2.0, a little bit quicker. Yeah. Um, serves pretty much just as well. And, you know, it hasn't quite happened, but they are starting to knock on the door now, all of them. So it's, yeah. it's, it's exciting to see. I think one of the things that's happened difference to your era and this era is that kind of the path is a little, the timeline's pushed back. So we're starting to see players break through or have better growth later in their life not necessarily their career but in a lot of cases both that well yes the problem is the players that tend to get to number one in the world have all done it pretty quickly <laughs> that's so true yeah that, you know the Djokovic is Murray Federer took a little while actually <laughs> mm-hmm. before he really sort of broke through but Nadal um, and now you have Alcaraz Rune Sinner yeah. sort of breaking through at a much younger age. So it, it gives you the feeling like, can the Americans go all the way to number one? You have to remember, once upon a time, the U.S., when I was ranked five in the world, I was ranked three in America. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, just to give you an idea, and there were probably three more Americans in the top 15, at least, mm-hmm. um, at that time. So times have changed, obviously. Well, someone that, and I appreciate this, has always been a straight shooter, and we see all the American success. Is there anybody on their current path where they are right now that surprised you? Like, in a good way. Like, wow, I wasn't necessarily sure that they would be ranked as high or on the path that they are, but they've taken leaps that you might not have seen coming at their early stages. Um, tough to answer in some ways. I, I was surprised at Nakashima last mm. year mm. when he sort of made those two finals in a couple of weeks in the summer of last year. That surprised me because I'd seen him in the juniors just a year or two before, and I didn't think he was – I thought he was a good player, but I didn't think he was quite ready to make the jump that quickly. Obviously, Jensen Brooksby was a surprise when he sort of shot up the way he did. He sort of 
won at every level that he played at comprehensively. So Futures, boom, he wins every term he plays, goes to Challengers, wins a bunch of Challengers, comes on the tour level, makes finals in Newport, semis of Washington right out of the gate. So yeah. he, he was sort of, wow. But, you know, he's stalled slightly mm. now, Brooksby. So I'm not sure. Both of them have somewhat stalled in a, in a sense. So right. that meteoric rise hasn't continued. Is that... And I guess Brooksby and Nakashima are great examples. The metaphor that I've used and I've seen used is like the baseball pitcher that comes out and has great stuff. Is that ap applicable to tennis, in your opinion, where like they have tape on you? They The first time might be tough to play against you, but once they see you, they can kind of develop trends to have success. The answer to that is yes, a little bit. There are There is some truth to that. Um, and I think maybe with Brooksby, something's been figured out. I haven't. Mm. <laughs> dug into it deeply but he came in and sort of no one yes yeah, so it's he, he's like how is this happening to yes, me one of those he, things yes yeah. he's a strange sort of looking player when he plays and the yeah. shots that he hits and i think it sort of threw people for a loop at the beginning and and they were yeah. thinking which is a terrible thought to have <laughs> how can i be losing to this guy and once you have that yeah. thought it sort of snow snowballs and bad things tend and to you've happen had that thought before i i may have <laughs> And yeah. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, at some point when you're winning enough, it doesn't matter what it looks like. People now say, wait, he's a, he's a very good player. And you don't have that thought process of, how can I be losing to this guy, which I think is destructive. Well, the biggest story of the past weekend was Holger Runa winning the Paris Masters, a teenager, continuing a good showing for a lot of teens this year on the men's side. Five top ten players to do it, which is just an insane stat outside the top 100 when the year started, now into the top 10. Young players develop, young players grow. But this growth, and really happening not just in this tournament, but in the last couple months, has been startling. What was it about his game, this run, that made you say, whoa, this is a legit threat? Because he is firmly in the discussion now as that next-tier top player. Yeah, I just had a friend of mine send me a text this morning saying, Rune is the new number one, not Alcaraz. Like, He's going to oh. pass Alcaraz in the next year or two. I don't know. It's bold. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. The exact <laughs> word I used, bold, <laughs> bold prediction. Um, look, from what I saw from him, he's a high risk, takes the ball early, rips the returns, um, can flatten out both, take both ground strokes pretty early. It's the kind of game that when it gets hot is incredibly dangerous, as mm. he proved with four tournaments in a row making finals and winning Paris Masters so he got hot at the end of the year he also has the feel to me that he can get cold and I don't know what that means but what that, that might mean is I don't know that he's the best bet for like a sustained number one run a slam, a bunch of slam runs because you said something interesting I mean if, if your baseline game if your BC game isn't uh, absurdly high quality. I don't know if you're as reliable, but I agree. I mean, when he was on, it was it wasn't fluky. This run, it seemed like he was the better player in most of these matches. He was no, no, he was. I just know that he had that nice run in Paris, yeah. and then sort of didn't win a match for a while. Mm -hmm. And it just feels like his style, because it's so aggressive, he's got to be confident to produce it comfortably over and over again. Obviously, he's very confident right now. He's won all these <laughs> yeah. matches, so he's feeling great. He's feeling that that perfect level of I want to win, but I'm not paralyzed by this this desire to win. He's got that perfect level going right now. That happens when you're winning a lot. You can lose it at some point. Now, if he continues to play this way consistently over and over again, then I, my hat's off. You're just great, period. That serve has really improved from when I first saw him to now. He's a powerful player. We know the confidence is there. I mean, he's brash, and I, that could be a good thing. Sometimes you can go over the line, but he's a very confident player. And that last game, I think, for the Djokovic side in the final, I don't think I, I don't think a lot of us doubted if this was a best-of-five match, how this kind of went. But I think Rune knew how his body was kind of feeling that he had to win that last game, and he dug in and hats off to him, closed out, Arguably the greatest player ever, one of the greatest players ever. Yeah, surprising because he did start to play tight in that last game, Rune. Mm -hmm. A little bit of the part that I was watching, he didn't, wasn't quite as bold with some of his shots. And Djokovic, I was surprised he didn't break, to be mm -hmm. honest. I, you know, obviously he had his chances 
and didn't didn't convert any of them. But look, as you said, he's confident, and that's when you believe in yourself, good things happen. He definitely believes in himself. He's firmly in that next tier. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. He's into the top ten now and alternate in the ATP Finals, which is <laughs> hard to believe as well. Uh, and has youth on his size. So I don't know what the next uh, iteration of his game is, but I know that he came highly touted, number one junior in the world. There is hype to him, and he's starting to prove it. And I think you, you mentioned the, the lull in his game. Consistency will be the next step. Well, it'll be interesting <laughs> for me if, if, and it might not happen at all, he might just take off from here and be, mm-hmm. you know, a top five player and consistently yeah. winning. But... Usually it takes more time to get to the top 10 than what he basically did it in a month. He went from sort of a tour player, Uh good, solid tour player, to top 10 in a four-week span. That feels Radicanu-ish to me. (laughs) You skip. I mean, obviously not in that same level of ridiculous. He skipped some steps. What will happen if he doesn't get off to a quick start, have a great start of the year? Just making quarters, third round of tournaments, and all of a sudden he's got to defend what he did this fall. That will be interesting to me if that happens. It might not. We're going to have to monitor that um, for Novak Djokovic's side. He's won the tournament six times. He gets to the final, loses. He's had the most stop and go of a season that he's had in his career. I think you'd been on record saying that there were times – French Open specifically, where he was tighter than normal. How would you assess and grade his performance in a Masters where he gets back to the final, doesn't win it, but another strong showing? Um, I mean, he can't win every match. He's mm-hmm. playing someone that's playing awfully well. So I, I, I'm not going to – he did win the first sad it, – it, I don't know. I still feel he's not as unflappable as he once was mentally. And I think as you get older, you start feeling the pressure more mm-hmm. and more. He wants to have all the records. He wants to be known as the greatest of all time. That That is definitely on his mind. And, you know, this year hurt him badly because he wasn't able to play most mm-hmm. of the majors. And it also hurt that Wimbledon didn't have points. That sort of annoys me in some ways just from – where the rankings are, he shouldn't have been playing Medvedev. It, it shouldn't have been Medvedev playing against Kyrgios in the third round, and Kyrgios made the his points for the finals. That wouldn't have been because Kyrgios was so good. I hate that Wimbledon didn't have points is yeah. basically where I'm going. Yeah. It skews the rankings. Well, it's going to be interesting to see if he gets back into that groove mentally. It'll help him to be playing all the time, but another good showing for him. Unfortunate, the, just to put a bow on Paris, Alcaraz with the injury, pulls out of the match against Rune down in the second set tiebreaker is not playing in the ATP finals. You always got to, you know, just be cautious with injuries, especially in that abductor region. But I wonder now, and I've been wondering what we're going to see, what he's going to look like as the number one guy, like with the weight of being the top guy on him. I don't, I think it's going to be early to tell how the pressure affects him, but he's got a good team around him, but this is a new role. This is uncharted territory for him. Well, he was, I believe the top seed one or first or second seed in Montreal. And he said there after he lost to Tommy Paul that he played nervously. He's not accustomed to going to a Masters 1000 and being the favorite or mm-hmm. one of the top favorites. Obviously, he went to the U.S. Open and he's still one of the top favorites at that tournament and did yeah. fine. Now that he's number one, he's just going to have to learn to deal with it. It is different. You're not chasing anyone every anymore. Everyone's chasing you. Everyone's gunning for you. Having said that, his game's pretty good. Uh, he's an incredible athlete. I mean, he does things that sort of, I don't know, I hadn't seen players do. He can hit a 100-mile-an-hour forehand from three feet behind the baseline, and then on the next shot, he's at the net and pretty close to the net. And I, you don't see anybody no. do that. It's, it's no. a new thing, and it's impressive to watch. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. More with Jimmy Arias here on Tennis Channel Inside In as we... Put a bow on not just Paris, but also the women's season. Caroline Garcia won the tour finals over Sabalenka. Sabalenka got the big win over world number one, Iga Sviantec. 
uh, biggest career for Caroline Garcia, uh, biggest title in her career, outside the top 70 about seven months ago. So that's the that that's the growth that she had. That's also kind of what happens when one player collects all the points, it seems. But props to Caroline Garcia for the biggest tournament of her career. Not just the biggest tournament of her career. I think she has the game to, and I know Andy Murray said it <laughs> 75 mm-hmm. years ago, um, yeah. that she's she can be number one in the world. She what has, is it about her game? Like She yeah. serves reasonably big, and she crushes returns. Mm. So the, the two things that are the most <laughs> important in the women's game yes. is getting off to an edge in the rally right away. And she does that well, very well, as well as almost anybody. I don't know what happened in those interim years where she <laughs> wasn't playing well, and obviously it's a bit of a high-risk style. So if... Similar to what I was saying with Runa, if you lose that bit of confidence and you're playing a high-risk style, bad things can happen. She's got the confidence right now. She's kept it for a while. I've expected her because you've, when you see someone that's lost their confidence, yeah, there always feels like there's going to be doubt just sort of hanging around. And she's managed to put it all pretty much behind her. I'll be interested to see what happens next year. And Actually, Sabalenka is interesting to me as well <laughs> yeah. because she started the year with 700 double faults in the first three or four weeks. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, well, that's it's Guillermo Coria time, which was the end of career for Coria, sadly, because I, I thought Coria was really fun yeah. to watch. He was an amazing talent, but he couldn't hit a serve on the planet. And yeah. I thought Sabalenka was there, and she's kind of, for now, gotten <laughs> over it. You've been open about your service struggles toward the end of your, end of your career. Sevlenko legit had 400 double faults this year. 400. Which, wow. Yeah. When I said 700, <laughs> I was kind of kidding. But I was <laughs> no, and it's in one hand, I'm like more. It's remarkable that she is able to get as far as she did and do as much as she could with that serve. I, I know. I mean, you from a tactical standpoint, it doesn't seem. It seems mental is what I'm getting at. There seems to be issues in her head when it goes away, but. She still has that high-level apex game where she could beat anyone in the world, Iga included. It, it is mental, first of all, 100%. I <laughs> yeah. didn't hit a double fall my whole life, and then all of a sudden in <laughs> one match I hit 10 or 11, and then I couldn't hit a second serve for the next two years. And I basically did it a different way than it seems like a lot of today's players. I made sure I didn't hit second serve. So I just, for some reason, I could spin in my first serve if I yeah. knew there was another serve coming. So I just spun him in. Sabalenka, Zverev, those guys sort of just go two bombs. Yeah. They go the other way. I'm going to hit two first serves right. and hope for the best. Um, we'll see if that can continue working. Well, an unbelievable year for the tour. Uh, Iga had just a phenomenal year. And those Americans, Coco and Pagula, I know it didn't end well for them, but playing doubles, playing together, giving that American you know, contingent hope that there's a next one there. But it's going to be tough for anybody to knock Iga off the mantle. Well, Iga's, you know, twice as good as everybody else points-wise <laughs> right now. So, I mean, yeah. Uh, this week, as we turn our attention to what's going on, you got the Billie Jean King Cup, which America wins a close tie in the new format over Poland. You also have the next-gen finals. And, you know, for the concept, for somebody that's been around the game as long as you have, how do you feel about this idea that we have this tournament for, you know, the young kids, a new format, which is exciting, something different, and bringing the, the young talent to the game? I love the concept and it's proven to sort of work because people that play the next gen seem to, yeah, they really do launch into something pretty good for the most part they have over the last few next gen. So I think it's a great concept. And I also love some of the innovations with the way they, I I love if there's a ACE or one or two shot rally, it's only 15 (laughs) seconds in between. You don't need to go towel off again. Sorry. (laughs) After you've had a one shot point. No. Uh, those type of things I love. I like. I think I like no ad scoring. I don't know that I would have liked it when I played. <laughs> the hot button debate around here. <laughs> I know. I don't know if I, I would have liked it when I played, but it is. It a. It makes every point a little bit more important. So forty fifteen point. You still have all of a sudden you lose that point, and you know you're one point away from having a break point against you. It's sort of. I don't know. It adds yeah. a little excitement. Yeah, I, I'm all for trying different things. and, and Up I to four that, is a little short. It just feels like every – yeah. no ad up to four <laughs> is, you know, know, you play set in ten minutes. The best of five thing with four is is different, but, hey, it's like you said, it's bringing these young talent together, and it's been the launching pad. Alcaraz, Sitsipas, like these guys have played, even someone like Taylor Fritz. Uh, the last thing I wanted to go over was the groups are out for the men's finals, and uh, it's interesting it seems a little weighted in one way. You have Djokovic, Medvedev, Sitsipas, and Rublev on one side. The other side is Rafa, 
Casper Ruud, Taylor Fritz, and Felix. So just on the surface, you have unproven guys in this finals, and you have guys that really haven't had the success in the indoor circuit as well. So I know there's a lot to be decided, but what are your initial thoughts to those groups? I mean, it's <laughs> it's tough luck for the Djokovic group is what <laughs> yeah. I, you know, when I'm yeah. hearing that and Medvedev and those, those names, that's part of the whole Wimbledon, no 2,000 points. I don't know where Djokovic would be ranked if you put 2,000 points on. Definitely higher. I think he's, I think he, in the race with the Paris final, he's pretty much in that eight to 10 range. So he would have made it anyway. You know, they have the grand slam rule, but yeah. yeah and 100% correct. The Wimbledon points thing, which I agree with you was a mistake is affecting how these groups are. Yes. And you know, Medvedev had some, some difficulties during the year too, but on this surface, he's one of the favorites. Mm-hmm. If I was mentioning favorites, I probably would have put Djokovic first Medvedev second. It's a pass before too. It's a pass third maybe. So it's sort of, uh, it makes that draw fairly difficult, obviously. And Rafa historically hasn't played particularly well. He's never won it. So it just feels like, yeah, there's, I think Felix is live here. I think that's one that I'd look at for the group. I mean, Felix has played remarkably well in the last couple months too. So, but I never, he's one of those high risk. He's got to be confident or Mm -hmm. he can lose to me. Right, no, no. <laughs> yeah, not, quite, maybe. not not yet no but but that's the problem there well jimmy arias this was a blast thanks for coming on last question how's the golf game going because i saw some videos in the last couple months well <laughs> i i had i hadn't played golf for a long time as okay. you may have surmised from what you saw and then i went to the uh i had a golf tournament okay. coming okay and i was in montreal and there was a little golf uh pad there that they had in the players lounge yeah and you were supposed to just chip and I don't know why they had a barber pole made out of glass <laughs> right next to it. But I decided since I have a tournament, a golf tournament coming, I hadn't played in two months, I should take a full swing. And I did. And the barber pole got in the way. So It did? Yeah. that's That happened. And <laughs> somehow I didn't get in much trouble. And it's just, you know, just some good laughs. In you, the handled, end. you handled it well. And it's just caught on video forever. Uh, exactly. Uh, Jimmy Arias, pleasure as always. Thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Thanks, Mitch. See ya. All right, huge thanks to Jimmy Arias. Always a blast talking tennis in the studio and uh, some golf there. So, you know, he puts his head down, goes to work. Uh, Jimmy's great. Always a blast talking tennis with him. All right, now we go to our special interview this week. It's Todd Martin joining the show, finishing up his tenure as the CEO of the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Todd had a standout career for over 14 years on tour, made two major finals, is very open about what his career meant to him, how he got to the big time, and what it was like competing with some of the greatest players this country and this sport has ever seen. A very, very insightful and thoughtful chat with Todd Martin. Here it is now on Tennis Channel Inside It. All right, now joining us on Tennis Channel Inside In, very pleased to be having this person as a guest. He's reached two major finals and a career high of number four in the world. Has a ton of accolades, but maybe the most impressive thing is staying involved in the game and doing his part to make the generations after him keep going and keep improving and progressing the sport. Todd Martin joins us now. Todd, pleasure to have you on the show. Really appreciate you taking time to chat with me. Thanks, Mitch. Nice to be here. I'll start with uh, a lot of different ways we can take this, but I want to start with this because I'm similar. Midwest roots, so I have to start from there. And uh, your, your origin story starts in the Chicago suburbs. You went up to Michigan and then back to Chicago for college. But what was it? What was the uh, universal force that got you to playing tennis and then playing it at a high level? What caused you to first pick up that racket? So I spent um, I spent a good bit of time uh, up until the age of ten in Ohio, actually mm. in Northeast Ohio. My dad worked for Goodyear in Akron, and um, my parents were both athletic. My mom had her master's in phys ed, and um, my dad was a you know sort of a traditional Midwest football, basketball, baseball, high school guy. And they found that tennis was the best way for them to enjoy recreation together. And as a tyke, I'd chase them up to the park. My dad sawed a wood racket in half. Uh, That's all they had back in the day. So sawed one in half. And if I behaved myself as they were playing, uh, I'd get to play home run derby for, you know, a few minutes afterwards and just... I 
fell, I mean, I was, I fell in love with basically every sport that I tried <laughs> um, at, at an early age, basketball and tennis, the most distinctly so. But tennis was something, we had a very slanted driveway. So a basketball rim was um, not easy to imagine yeah. coming by. Um, but like my parents, just because just to keep me occupied, my parents turned a picnic table up on its end and I just tapped balls against mm -hmm. the picnic table when I was home. That was more fun than playing with mm -hmm. matchbox cars or whatever. And so, you know, I just sort of got the sound of racket hit ball, yeah. ball hit ground in my, um, in my head pretty early. Well, I'm nodding along because I got the Northeast Ohio roots too. So that was your, your right. quarter there. Yeah. With the football family and everything. Um, did you, in, in your time that you grew up, did you have influences outside? Cause you were coming up in the tennis boom, the, the era where tennis kind of got mainstream at, at what point I should say, did you start looking to the media and the famous tennis players as kind of role models and ways to kind of follow that path? Well, I, when I was young, um, you know, the, the people who were on TV were, and we got to watch the Americans more than mm -hmm. anybody else, but uh, Chris Everett, mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe. And then as, um, as I got a little bit more familiar and a little bit more exposure to um, the, at the time, the modern game, I started looking at, um, and this is probably after I moved to Michigan when I was 10. And so that was when I would have looked at uh, McEnroe, Connors, Lendl, Borg, mm. and a little bit later than Edberg and Becker. Yeah. Uh, and Edberg was the only one that, let's say, was sort of lock, stock, and barrel for me. Um, aggressive game style, very composed, uh, and you know, gentlemanly or, mm -hmm. you know, high, high levels of sportsmanship. There was a lot there yeah. and probably a good bit of it was my parents saying, see, look at that guy, see how he behaves. You should be more like him. Um, but uh, I, the, the older four Connors, Borg, McEnroe and Lendl, I, I picked and choosed uh, mm. what I wanted to be out of those. So I wanted the, tenacity of Connors more than anything else. I wanted the tenacity of Connors. I wanted the ice water through the veins like Borg. I would have died for a work ethic like Lendl. And uh, we were all envious of, uh, of John's talent. And so I, you know, I sort of pieced myself together, or pieced a model of yeah. my, for my game uh, together across those four. And then certainly Boris and Stefan's, um, success in the mid eighties, mid to late eighties certainly helped. Um, you know, they were, um, they were, um, a distinctly more modern right. style of play. Uh, you know, the racket progression, uh, the racket technology progression there, uh, definitely made them play the game differently. The hands at the net with Macaro, no one really had those, but I mean, that style of play was very similar. And I wanted to just kind of segue into, your style of play has been described, and, and I've noticed it as well, as very smooth, very sharp, coming forward a lot. When did you develop your own style? When did you decide at what point in your career, this is how I'm going to play, this might give me the best shot to win and have success? So from an, uh, from an early age um, in Ohio and then even more so in Michigan, I was taught really, really well. So I, I was taught a very traditional style of, uh, uh, or technique. And because I was a string bean, super tall, uncoordinated in a way, good hands, but uncoordinated, um, uh, holistically between my, uh, my legs and my upper body movement was a constant. And so I was, I was educated, um, or, held accountable for my movement uh, mm -hmm. by coach all the time. And so by the time I actually matured physically, I had great strokes. Yeah. Um, I had the disciplines of good movement. I didn't have the athleticism of good movement, but I had the disciplines of good movement. And 
around 13, 14, my coach uh, really started hammering into my head that I was going to, if I was going to be successful in tennis in the long term, I was going to finish most points at the net. At the time, I didn't know how to volley very well. Um, at the time, I uh, it was hard for me to keep the ball in play long enough to have yeah. the opportunity to come to the net. Yeah. And at the and at the time, I certainly didn't have the athleticism to cover the net very um, um, very very well. But the fact that that vision was laid early, and the, the efforts, the disciplines were um, uh, were instilled in me to pursue that, I think got me to the point where when I did actually start to coordinate my body and had the musculature to do so, those pieces of the puzzle uh, fell into place pretty quickly. When you play that way, and I know we're kind of jumping ahead, but how do you stay, how do you keep your spirits high, your morale high when you are going to get passed, when you are playing against players that are going to hit winners against you? Some, I think it's fair to say, aren't able to keep their head in it and would kind of go south pretty quickly if that happens. How are you able to except the fact that, okay, winners are going to happen, but it still gives me the best chance to win. So I'll go in, I'll probably go in reverse order on, from a reason standpoint. One, I lost enough along the way. Um, I was not a great junior. I was a good junior. I, you know, national rankings in my second year of age groups, you know, but nothing to write home to mom about. So I lost a lot. I mean, I lost in, in the boys 14 and under national indoors i lost o and o and it wasn't that close um so so francisco montana's listing uh hey kiko um that's the first re that's the first reason or the last reason the second reason is my coach constantly instilled in me that it was not an objective to be great today it's an objective to be great 10 years from now like, there's no sense in trying, trying to be your best at age 14. I was, I was determined to be my best at least in college and ideally after, uh, ideally after college. That's the second most important. And the first most important is my, my parents. My parents raised me to be a respectful and responsible uh, person. And embedded in that is the notion that we're providing you, we, the parents are providing you this opportunity, this privilege to play a, a game. Yeah. You treat it with the utmost of respect. And if you treat it with respect, you try no more, no matter what you keep, you figure out how to keep your chin up no matter what. And I think all of that sort of manifests itself in the ability to withstand um, with, with, withstand, you know, the shrapnel that is constantly, um, embedded in your chest when the, when, when you're losing, uh, points in a row, um, it feel, it always feels like you're losing more when you're coming than that. It might be right yeah. there. Yeah. You lose quick, right? You lose quick. Yeah. So, oh my gosh, what would have happened had I yeah. not? It sounds like in your story of not being the best junior, still a very good junior, but not at that ultra elite level, that it was always college. Like you didn't have that debate of, I might go pro early. College was the, the breeding ground. And at the time, I know college's level has gotten pretty good again. It dipped a little bit after you, but you were riding the tail end of some really good college players that turned pro. Uh, college tennis was, uh, I, I thought was really, um, was really good when I was there um, at, at Northwestern. One of the reasons I didn't go to the University of Michigan was because I was concerned in my freshman year, I was going to play as low as number four in the lineup. And, you know, that, that, that tells you right there, how strong, <laughs> yeah. um, how strong college tennis can be. And, and I was so far away, Mitch, from being remotely ready to play professionally. I was, I was just not I was just not good enough. I was not mature enough physically. I was, certainly was not mature enough emotionally, and um, and it would have been it would have been um, it would have been a failed experiment had I considered not going to college. I left college after my sophomore year, 
two years in and I, uh, two years into the, my professional career, I thought it was a failed experience uh, or experiment. I fortunately discovered that um, I was making more progress than I, than I've given myself credit for. That maturity is such a huge part. Obviously the game development is huge, but for athletes that go pro early and aren't ready for it to handle the grind of a pro, of a pro career, you mentioned those two years that you went to college and then pro before the breakthrough happened, before all the success started to happen, what were those first few years like on tour? Did you feel a sense of, I guess, loneliness, like it maybe turned tennis into a job instead of the, the fun exercise that it was? What were those first couple of years on tour like? Well, the first, the first most difficult thing was leaving an extraordinarily comfortable place. College was outstanding amongst a team, growing, have the safety of that community, Mm -hmm. but also establishing more and more independence and surrounded by thousands upon thousands of people in my age group. And many of whom were uh, were and still are some of my best friends. So that was, uh, that's a hard way to start a journey. Uh, it's uh, to to be leaving something so important to uh, to you behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's a very difficult way to start a journey. My tennis was sporadically adequate those first couple yeah. of years. I'd have a good result, feel like I was making progress, and then just got yeah. throttled by some bad result or revelation that I that I didn't know how to play the game as well as I had thought, you know, whether that for a couple of months have another good result, okay result, but it just, it it felt like a real slog. And I did feel there was a lot that I enjoyed about that time. Um, Social, sorry, I should say socially was really difficult too, right? I'm, I'm a 20 year old, 21 year old in a, in a population of 25 year olds that did feel like a significant age gap. I was not terribly outgoing, so it wasn't like I was going to inject myself into um, the social dynamic on tour. Mm -hmm. So it relied on me actually to have some success as a player in order to be accepted by um, by the population. And yeah, I mean, it just, I don't know if it ever felt like a job. However, it did feel, and I remember this sensation um, vividly, it did feel like the game was different Mm. because there was more riding on it. Yeah. So I now had to support myself. It was no longer about winning for my college team or mom and dad take me to a junior tournament. Mm -hmm. And if I do well, that's great. If I don't do well, that's fine. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how large the check was that they (laughs) had to write to pay for the travel, pay for the hotel, you know, but all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, wait a second. I just lost in the first round again. And I know how much I spent and I know how much I made. And those numbers are in the (laughs) inverted uh, order that they should be. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. More with Todd Martin here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, well, 94 is when it all came together, and uh, it started with Australia, the run to the finals. You made two other semis at majors. I guess starting off, did you have inklings that you were getting close going into the start of 94, that you were on the verge of something special? You still you did have a pretty good 93 with a lot of match wins there, but what was that progress of the feeling of getting closer like for you? Yeah, for me, 93 was the key um so i i did horribly in australia in 93 i came back i switched back to an old racket that i had just switched away from i had done a lot of 
physical training the end of 92 I actually stopped competing in 92 early so that I could have a longer off season that was a very you know, sort of my first revelation about strategic decisions um, having long-term payoff uh, and then in February of 93 I had my first um, really sustained week of great tennis and that mm. was in Memphis at B. Yeah. David Wheaton, Yako Elting, Andre Agassi, and Michael Chang before mm. losing to Jim Courier, uh, 7-6 in the third set yeah. in the final. And so, um, and I don't remember many results very well, but that one I remember. <laughs> gotcha. um, yeah. And then a couple months later, yeah, I won a tournament. And so I think in that year, I probably went from somewhere around 100 to somewhere in the top 15 in 93. Mm. So when I got to 94 and having, and having benefited from learning from my previous off season, I, I knew I was ready. I knew I was ready to compete in yeah. 94. It's still, you don't really know until you get into the swing of things and yeah. a couple of things fall your way. It, it takes a lot of good luck. Yeah, I think it takes a lot of good luck for anybody who's not one of the greats of all time. Yeah to get mm -hmm. into that, uh, yeah. into those later rounds. I think it just, it didn't take luck for Pete or Andre or Jim to get into the, into the finals of a, yeah. uh, of a slam. Uh, it took, it took luck for me to do that. Not a, you know, a lot of good tennis, yeah, but not all you know, luck. <laughs> a good, a good, a bit, a good bit of fortune as well. And it was impressive that the one, the first result, the final of the Australian Open wasn't the plateau. It wasn't like we've seen so many players make their first breakthrough and then the dip happens. You followed it up that year. Losses to Sampras, Sampras, Agassi. The two finals and the final in 1999 was Agassi as well. When you look back at your best major runs that kind of met their match and some of the greatest players of all time, do you look back at that with a different perspective now that you maybe got as far as you think you could have? You lost to two of the icons in tennis history, or is there still something left on the table in your mind? Uh, well, there's, I'm 52. <laughs> I can barely walk and there's nothing left on the table. <laughs> um, so, gotcha. um, no, listen, Mitch, it's, um, I, I look at my, um, I look at the Americans that I was looking up to, um, who are my age peers, Michael Chang, Jim Courier, Andre Agassi, and Pete Sampras. And sure, I could say I took it in the chin from, a, uh, from those guys an awful lot uh, over the course of my career. And had it not been for them, I would have been, you know, mm -hmm. on top of Mount Everest. If anybody believes that, we need to really have a chat <laughs> because... Um, I benefited more in spite of, in spite of losing to them, I, ben I benefited more from um, their presence mm -hmm. than I could have ever imagined. I won from a motivation standpoint, like that's greatness. So at least I know what greatness is and I can work towards that. Yeah. Um, and I did have, and I did have a front seat, especially uh, with Jim because uh, we shared a coach and especially with Pete because mm -hmm. we were, uh, we were close and we played doubles a, mm -hmm. a good bit together and, yeah. and so forth. So I knew what it was. And that gave me, I think that gave me a tremendous advantage uh, against mm -hmm. so many of my peers uh, because I had a, I had a closer look. Uh, and the other thing is again, sort of to my nature as a, as a person, I'm not remarkably outgoing and I'm, I, and I was less so then. And so for me, uh, in old school, traditional media, the only media I ever got was good media. It was, if I did well, people were patting me on the back. If I didn't do well, they were talking about Pete Andre, Jim and Michael. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I don't know if my ego had it in, in, uh, in it to withstand the scrutiny that right. um, that their lives and careers were under. You hear a lot about what you said, that that great perspective when players that play in this big three era, now that Federer's retired with Nadal and Djokovic, they've collected all the slams. And it could be easy to say if I was just born in a different era, but as you said, 
I got to believe they're much better players for having been pushed by what greatness looks like. Is there anything you can you can shed about any of these players, what it was like to actually share the court with them? You lived out what a lot of us watched, what makes Pete and Andre and Jim Courier for that as well, what made them so tough to play against as competitors and also as tennis players? Yeah, um, I, I think the I, I think first and foremost, there was a tremendous amount of self-belief and it didn't always reveal itself as self-belief. I think um, Jim, Jim looked determined. Pete looked relaxed. Andre looked talented and flashy. But when, you know, the second half of, uh, of Andre's career, when he was really quite focused, I think he had established, he'd, I've never seen somebody transform themselves like, like Andre. And he shed so many of what were probably insecurities um, about himself and about his game. And what resulted was a, a tremendously high level of self, uh, self-belief. Yeah. And when you walked out on the court with him, or, sorry, I should say when I walked out on the court with him, I had a sense of how much self-belief he had. When I watched him walk out on the court with Pete, maybe I didn't see that same self-belief. When Pete walked out on the court against anybody, you sort of knew, like, yeah, that, that guy knows he's going to win. He didn't mm-hmm. always win, but that guy mm-hmm. knows he's going to win. And I think that's the, uh, that, that might be the difference between people feeling um, sorry for themselves about having to compete against greatness and those who penetrate right. that that echelon and um, and start to see greatness, like uh, Daniil Medvedev, mm. of this, uh, well, I guess of the somewhat younger population yeah. now, considering what uh, how young the guys are that are having good success now. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Daniil Medvedev clearly has a level of self belief, and um, and and had he not no matter how good of a player he is, he wouldn't have figured out how to penetrate that, yeah. um, that, 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 uh, stratosphere. Being able to beat Djokovic going for a career grand slam, you have to have some confidence there. Remarkable stuff. And, and I, I know that there's the household name, American tennis players, but you were doing your part as well, carrying the mantle on all those Davis cup teams. I think nine straight, the 95 team. What was it like? Not only just representing your country, Todd, but also, Getting to be teammates with some of these iconic tennis players, it had to feel, I guess you had to have some perspective in the moment, like this is a pretty unique experience to become teammates with, as we mentioned, some of the greatest players of all time. You know, we grew up watching, for us, it was growing up watching McEnroe and Fleming and, you know, having these uh, these Davis Cup experience uh, experiences um, or visuals embedded in our minds as accomplished as Pete and Andre and Jim and Michael were, I probably still had McEnroe and Fleming up here because I was eight to 15, not, mm-hmm. not their age peers. Yeah. And so like, I, I knew these guys as my peers and friends and, and, and essentially teammates Whereas John and Peter were still sort of like, oh, that's that's McEnroe Fleming. That's pretty cool. Um, so, I, you know, that that element, there wasn't like the sense of moment. And part of that probably also came from the notion that we weren't we weren't we weren't really together as a team. I mean, it was these four sporadic weeks uh, mm-hmm. around the uh, around the calendar. It could be Pete, Mal Washington, and a doubles team one one yeah. match. It could be Jim, me, and a doubles team another match. It could be Andre. Like it was all over the map, right. and so it it didn't feel like a team as much as it felt like uh, we were competing as individuals. But we had the benefit of being able to compete for the USA. No, that, that totally makes sense. I think it, it's a luxury to have when you have such uh, a deep talent pool, which you had at the time. And uh, I, I do want to mention as well, the record that you do have, still a share of, but 
it's been tied and caught up on. But the nine Grand Slam comebacks down two sets. I think Federer and Murray got you. Federer retired, so props to Roger for not breaking that one last record. But nine two sets comebacks in Grand Slams is a uh, is an insanely high number. There's some good players on that list: Carlos Moya, Greg Gruzetsky. What do you think it was that I guess gave you the comfort, calmness, if you will? to still be in these matches and mentally checked in to give yourself a chance where probably some luck and some fortune has to happen, but that you still had that sense of belief down two sets. So I don't remember how old I was the first time I came back from two sets to love down. And honestly, I don't know if I lost from two sets to love up first, or if I came back and won from two sets to love down first. I mean, but the fact of the matter is, We've spent, we would have spent so many years competing in our sport as little kids, as adolescents, and then young adults. Okay, we lost the first set. What do you do? You keep playing. You like, you know, I might play better, my opponent might play worse. Like that, that just so because, because it's five best of five sets, and because that deficit is two sets. I, I do think that it is more, it has the potential of being more discouraging. However, I, I mean, most best of five set matches are at one point in time, two sets to one, mm-hmm. I believe. I believe more set, more matches go four and mm-hmm. five sets collectively than go three sets, yeah. uh, right? I don't, I don't know that for a fact, but I believe, I believe that's, you, probably, yeah. that's probably the case. So that means... The majority of matches at one point in time are two sets to one for somebody. Would you rather be up two sets to one? Sorry, would you rather be down two sets to one having lost the thought lost the third set or be down two sets to one having won the third set? Yeah, I mean, I think I know where you're going at getting that third set. How many times do we see the top players in the game where they're down two sets? And you say they have to win it. Basically, you have to win it in three, because if Djokovic or Nadal get momentum, and then here, here it comes. I, I would just add to it too. In, in judging your career, studying it a little bit, you had a, a, you knew who you were as a tennis player. You were gonna, like you said, going back to how your parents taught you to play and to compete. You knew how you were gonna play, and you didn't deviate from that, regardless of how bad it got. And of course, you're not always gonna come back, but you always have that belief that it is possible. I just got to keep putting in the work. Yeah, if I lost, and if I if I lose when I'm up two sets to love, I have two options. One, to believe that I'm the unluckiest human being alive because yeah. I lost from two sets to love up. Or it's human nature, and the same thing can happen to my opponent the next yeah. time they're up two sets to love. That's that's the that's just life. I mean, that's just life and you you figure out how to get up the next morning, you <laughs> tackle the next challenge and for me that third set was the next challenge. Right. And most of the time you recognize um either one of two things. You either had a lot of room to improve because you played the first two sets poorly or your opponent had played the first two sets exceptionally well. Well, it's hard to play three sets exceptionally well. So let's, mm-hmm. let's see what he's got, you know, and just sort of ask, the, uh, ask the question. Well, some of those matches were at the U S open, some of the notable ones and much is said about the crowd as an American who lived it. Did you feel that boost? Did you feel that extra surge of energy as an American playing in the home slam? Yeah, it was great. It was great. It was, um, uh, there is, um, for being a relatively mild-mannered athlete, there was something about playing at Ash Stadium under the lights, especially where you know the New York, the New York sports fan demanded more. Mm. They they participated in the competition. If you're not playing well, they jeer you, whistle, chirp, and then. If you were playing well, they'd like, yeah, I'll take me along for the ride. And, and that, uh, frankly, that stimulated more enthusiasm and energy um, in myself. 
Yeah, I saw the racket smash when you beat Moya. It's like something came over you, and, and I believe it. It was... Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Phenomenal stuff. A few more things with Todd Martin here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Even before your career winded down, Todd, you were active in the ATP Players Council. You were taking on different roles, helping the game. And did you see yourself taking these leadership roles naturally, or did it just get kind of thrust upon you? Because it's no coincidence in my mind what that has led to in your post-tennis playing career? Well, I'm thankful that, uh, I'm, I'm thankful that let's say I was the one person not smart enough to step backwards when they said, <laughs> who wants to be the president of, the, of yeah. the player council? I was the youngest person on the player council, I think, when I first was elected as president. Um, and it really was, I mean, it really was sort of like, I got pointed at. Um, at the time, I, I was the best player out of the group. I had been an interested party, just, I don't know. Um, it was my career. I figured if if I took the on-court stuff seriously, I should take the off-court stuff seriously. I wasn't at all interested in, in, in the business side of the sport other than to understand, right. you know, what, what are the responsibilities on players? What, what's going on? How does this, how does this system all work? But then I, I did enjoy, I enjoyed spending time with, uh, with the leaders of the ATP. I enjoyed spending time uh, with fellow players who had an interest in the sport beyond just chasing the ball around. And, um, you know, this led to that, that led to this. And, um, and then eventually I think more through serving on the USTA board of directors, it became more and more apparent that my contributions to the game, if they were going to sustain, were going to be off the court. Mm -hmm. I didn't have great experiences coaching the game. And so um, uh, the notion of, uh, of converting my career off the court and into the office. um, Yeah. It, it was an interesting leap and, and not one that I did with any great certainty of success and very similar to actually playing in, yeah. in a way. Well, it's been a remarkable one completing up this year, your tenure at the international tennis hall of fame, growing that the classes that have been great. And and I think it was a fitting tribute that the last uh, hall of fame open that you presided over was won by Maxim Cressy playing your style of play somewhat. So uh, I think that was good. And I think helping improve the game and kind of push it forward it seems like it is something that has been up your alley and I just I don't know if it strikes you this way but it seems like you're somebody that maybe not didn't necessarily know what they wanted to do but definitely wanted to stay involved in the game post tennis playing so so for me um the compelling uh the compelling draw to come and work for the hall of fame in 2014 was the notion of how much have I taken from the sport and what can I give, what can I give back to the sport? And, um, uh, and I did feel like um, serving the hall of fame, serving the history of the sport, but serving the history of the sport in hopes of being a vehicle to help grow the sport, I thought was a great, was a, a great opportunity, a huge challenge and, and something worth, uh, uh, as my wife would have said at the time, a life, uh, a worthy life adventure. Like, you know, it, it might've ended in failure, but at the same time, like it's worth, it's worth a go. And, um, and I've, I've, uh, thoroughly enjoyed my almost nine years and, um, I'll shed a couple of tears, uh, in December as I'm locking up my office for the last time. 
Well, I, I think it's it's very noble what you've done, the ability to grow not only the game, the Hall of Fame, but, you know, put Newport on the map a little bit. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, your extensive charity work, the Todd Martin Youth Leadership, uh, one of them being to kind of help, you know, underprivileged, under-resourced youth. So important in a lot of ways, tennis can be a vehicle, which we've seen time and time again. But how important was charity work to you in general and then starting the Youth Foundation to help kids first and foremost? So again, I'll blame my parents, right? Yeah. I, um, I think our, our philanthropic spirits are developed for the most part, for most of us are developed pretty early in life by what do we witness our parents doing uh, first and foremost, and then what are they supporting financially if they have the means to do so? Um, so with that and a childhood tennis coach who I've spoken about today, who was, um, still is actually, a, a vehicle for good in our sport. And, you know, he connected dots. He's the most manipulative human being I know who I love dearly. But he just said, you know, you really like kids. And you always talk about how important your hometown of Lansing, Michigan is. And tennis, and and you know how much tennis is already given you, given you. This is after I made it to the quarterfinals in 1993 at Wimbledon. So that was sort of my first good six-month uh, stretch of tennis. And he said, there's a way to do this. And he told me the story about Charlie Passerell, Arthur Ashe, and Sheridan Snyder coming up with the NJTL concept, uh, now National Junior Tennis and, and Learning. And he said, we can do that here and we can provide kids the opportunity to have privilege that your parents provided you, their families don't know how to provide them or are unable to provide them that, and we can do good. And um, between uh, him, my dad, and um, a little bit of me, we created this. Uh, we created this nonprofit in 1993. That's still going. It's scary to think that it's almost 30 years. But um, you know, we've we've evolved from essentially teaching tennis uh, tennis camps in the summer yeah. to a couple or 300 kids on community courts to tennis leadership tons of tutoring and homework help, um, giving kids physical education in lieu of what they're missing at, uh, yeah. uh, in school, any number of things. And we're, we're serving thousands of kids annually now. And I've had, you know, I was, I was part of the seed that started the, started the deal. I'm still dedicated to the, um, to the program, but much to much, much, much to my, um, joy it's become a community-led awesome. uh, program and once it once it became that it was clear that it can be sustainable and that's um, that's that that means the world to me it's very remarkable stuff uh todd martin it's been a pleasure a pleasure chatting with you here on tennis channel inside in we got a lot going on in the future best of luck with that it, it's really been an honor talking to you and i guess the last thing are you becoming a tennis parent now are you on the other side your kids playing so our kids are 19, 16, and 14, and all at one point in time had tennis rackets in their hands and okay. all don't any okay. longer. Um, uh, yeah, they've all found their own passions, fortunately. <laughs> and um, I do imagine that at least one of them, hopefully all three, will find tennis again yeah. in their adulthood. It's uh, the joy of it is for all of us. I mean, and this goes for those of us who actually played the game well professionally. Yeah. It is the sport of a lifetime, so I'm excited. I'm excited to uh, hopefully see them on the court again um, before too long. This has been a blast. Thank you, Todd Martin, so much for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Really appreciate it. Thanks a bunch, Mitch. Nice to talk to you. A tremendous thanks to Todd Martin for taking time out of his schedule to have that thoughtful, insightful chat. He's going to do great things going forward. He continues to stay involved in the game and leave it better than he found it. So thank you again, Todd Martin. And thanks to Jimmy Arias as well. Both were tremendous guests. 
And thank you to everybody out there for listening. Tennis.com slash podcast. That's where you need to go. You'll find the Tennis Channel Podcast Network there. Inside In is on all your podcast platforms. Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get your podcast, Tennis Channel Inside In can be found there. We will be back next week, same time, same place, talking ATP finals. The action in Italy is going to be tremendous. We'll recap the Billie Jean King Cup in the next-gen finals as well, and some interviews on tap. Don't want to spoil anything, but we got some more interviews along the way. We'll get you through the short offseason and ready to go for 2023. But for Todd Martin and Jimmy Arias, my name is Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.